I think I have a fair perception of who's working hard, who's not, who's bored, who's engaged. And I piece these things together and, and one of the patterns I've seen, I'll see people walking up and down the hallway all the time, which is why I call it the hallway test. Welcome to another instalment of What Matters, a podcast series inspired by a book of the same name. It's a book that navigates one man's lifetime of business and investing. I'm your host, Adam Spencer, and as always, I'm joined by that man. He's the author of What Matters, chairman of the Sydney Swans, and the co-founder of Molus Australia, which now, of course, has been rebranded as MA Financial Group. Andrew Pridham. We have a special guest, Rhonda Brighton-Hall. She's one of Australia's experts in the human side of business, former Telstra Businesswoman of the Year, host of the Article 23 podcast. Article 23, of course, being the article in the Declaration of Human Rights about the right to work. Thanks for joining us, Rhonda. How are you? Really good and great to be here too. Tell us about MWA, M-W-A-H, as in MWA. <laughs> it's like that. So making work absolutely human. Making work absolutely human, MWA. That's it. And we launched in February 17, just to rethink the whole people and culture space. What is it about Rhonda? Why is Rhonda here to help us navigate these waters, winning habits and, and tricks of the trade, Andrew? Well, today we're going to talk all about people and our business is all about people. And in fact, most businesses are about people. So who better than Rhonda, who's an expert in people? Let's start. You describe yourself in Chapter 5 of What Matters uh, as an observant person. What do, you, what do you base that on? And do you think that's a particularly common or rare skill? Well, I probably regret saying that I'm very observant because my wife has read the book. <laughs> said, you, you never notice when I've had my hair done, and uh, which I was quite amusing because I had my hair cut yesterday and she didn't notice. There you go. <laughs> um, but I did. So now I make a, a little game of being observant and I've always have since I was a kid. Mm. And I love just observing patterns around me and, and people's behaviours and whether things have been moved or something's happening as I walk down the street or walk through the office. If I see things, I'll think, oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. And I'll remember it and uh, try and piece together what's going on. Because, Rhonda, most, not many people have put their hand up and go, I'd, I'd like to think I'm not observant. We, we assume it's a skill we have. But when you talk to people about mindfulness and they say, actually take moments to look and absorb what's going on around you, I get the impression a lot of people do just float through yeah, without with seeing, without really observing. Yeah, it's, it's actually a really great skill to observe and to observe a whole. And the way that we look at it is the way that people think. And there's only about 20% of us that come at the world with a perceptual bias, and that's where observance comes from. And you actually look at a whole room or a whole group or a team of people or a family, and you're seeing how they're all interacting and then putting it together in small pieces, as opposed to the way most people think, which is gradually gathering small data points and putting them together at the end. But perceptual IQ or a way of thinking about it is that observant skill to look at the whole and spot things that matter together. Because there's all sorts of you know, data literature out there that we're only taking in 5%, 10% of what is even actually hitting our eyes. And you hear the accuracy of eyewitness testimony over time in courts and all that suggests people forgetting that. So is it something you, you say it's always been part of your life? Is it something that people can train up in themselves if they're not naturally observant? I think people can train most things, but I guess it's one of those, like most things in life, if, if you've got a natural inclination to something and it's part of your DNA, it's a virtuous circle in that you, you practice it more, you get better at it and better at it and you enjoy doing it. And uh, I talk about, one of the things I talk about in the book is the hallway test. 
Now, I like this because I've learned a few things already doing these podcasts. I've learned about the Karma bus, learned about a couple yes. of things. This is the the hallway test. Walk us through the hallway test. Well, the hallway test, for those within my organisation that have read uh, this chapter, are now terrified of seeing me in the hallway. <laughs> nice. Uh, but the hallway test is not always a negative. It can be a positive. Basically, why I call it the hallway test, and I've called it this for many, many years, probably 20 years, is over time I've observed people in the office, some of whom I know, some of whom I don't know, and I, I watch people quite closely and I can I think I have a fair perception of who's working hard, who's not, who's bored, who's engaged, and I piece these, these things together. And, and one of the patterns I've seen over time, which is why I call it the hallway test, is I'll see people walking up and down the hallway all the time. And I'm not a creature of habit, but I'll, I think oh, every time I'm going to a meeting or heading out, this, I see the same person always in the hallway or in the kitchen. And I think to myself, what are they doing in the hallway? They haven't even got a desk in the hallway. They haven't got a computer. And I, th- and I think to myself, they're probably not doing anything. So they're not engaged. So I'll, I'll then follow up with their manager and just inquire as to you know, how they're going. And often the manager will be quite surprised and say, and I'll then I'll judge their reaction. And it's amazing how often you can see in their eyes, wow, I've hit the spot here. This person's not working out. And maybe it's because they're not engaged. Maybe we have to work out how to get them more engaged, change their role. Um, but likewise, it, it, the hallway test on the positive side might be if I came in on the weekend to pick something up from the office or do some work, which is not very often these days. But if I did, I'll always observe and go and just say hello to the people who are working on a nice Saturday afternoon and they're in the office. And I think, hmm, okay, I'll just remember that. And I do. Because we've spoken earlier in the podcast series about as a leader, you should be seen to be out there on the floor, walking, not just locked away in the office, doing the important stuff, someone who's part of the team. But you're saying it also goes back the other way. Does the hallway test make sense to you, Rhonda? Yeah, it makes. It, it, there's two sides to it, isn't there? One is you do see what people are doing, but you're also seeing how they're seeing you. And you can actually see when people are looking at you, eye contact, confidence. There's a whole bunch of things that you observe with people as you walk around and interact with them. That if you stick away into a meeting and you only see them performing, then it's a very different view of them. We're walking around seeing people. I would say a lot about culture just from walking into a room and seeing who looks up, who doesn't, how people are connected to each other, people having conversations openly, do they look scared? There's a lot in that too. But one of the things that happens in the hallway also is it's a great place to get the latest scuttlebutt rumour and innuendo. I'm talking office politics. And the moment I saw office politics as a heading in the book, I thought, this, this, is, this is my field. I love a bit of goss. I love knowing who's doing what, to whom, for why, dot, dot, dot. But you've got some – you're suggesting here that office politics is not a good thing? I don't think it's a good thing. I, I don't like it. And there's a, it, it always exists, and I think that you, you would have across the journey. You would have seen a lot of it. And the bigger the organisation, usually the the more likely it is to to be within the culture. And I don't like it. I think there's always going to be some elements of it, the gossip, you know, this this and that. I think that's fine to a point. But when people become overtly political, and everything they do is based on what it means for them, and trying to put other people down, and I find that very distasteful and I say, particularly when some of the younger staff in our business, I say to them, just don't fall into the trap of becoming the office gossip because everyone knows it and people ultimately resent it. Just don't do it. Just try and be, be positive 
and look on the bright side and, and the good side of people and, and everyone's a lot happier. Because I'm not being facetious here. Most of the jobs I've held have been hosting a radio show or something. We're, we're are sort of a separate unit within the – and that's a small – I've, I've not been in a big, broad organisation where there are fiefdoms and people playing against each other. Is it just inherent in larger organisations that this sort of stuff will happen? I think it comes from two sources. So one is you do have people who create gossip, like they're just those people. And often when we talk about them, whether it be harassment or something crazy like that, you talk about it as an event and people try to solve it as an event, but actually it's a pattern of behaviour. That person will create that same gossip and rubbish that wastes everyone's time over and over and over and over. So you do have to look at it back to your point of looking at patterns. Is this a pattern of behaviour that they're wasting everyone's time and being super annoying? The second part that it comes from is people who don't have a lot of power. And so if they haven't got positional power, hierarchical power, tenure, whatever it happens to be, they'll sometimes try to grab information so that they can be the person who knows stuff that's going on. And people do gravitate to talk to them, but not for interesting reasons and not for reasons that will be good for their career or good for the business or good for the other people. They're just because they're like an island of crappy conversation in the middle of a good conversation that you should be having. I think one of the problems with it is when people are wasting their time gossiping and, and politicking, they're internally focused. All their focus is on Absolutely. You know, what's the person in the, that department doing rather than in our business, for example, focusing on what are our clients doing, what, what's happening in the, in the markets, what's happening in the world. Don't look in, look out. And that, that inward looking thing is suggesting that if someone else in the organisation wins, that can only happen if I've lost this. This fixed pie and we're all fighting for a slice of that. But an organisation's at its best, isn't it, where if I look at a rival you know, or someone else in the business, not as a rival, but who's doing well as, that's fantastic, well done you, that's good for all of us. Think how crazy it is that in any profession, there's probably within Australia alone, while generalisation, don't believe these numbers, I'm just making them up clearly, but there might be 10,000 people doing the job that you do. And you worry, you might not sleep at night. Some people will worry and not sleep at night, worrying about, what the person who sits three feet from them, who does the same job, gets paid, what their title is, and there's another 9,998 people in Australia who they don't think about, who might be getting half what they're getting, for example, in terms of compensation, yet they worry about the person three feet from them. It's something I've always observed, but I always despair at, because if you look at the bigger picture, you should worry about yourself and don't count the other person's money, as we say. Well, one of the points you make in the book about getting the best out of people and when they're going to be able to achieve their best, especially at more senior roles, is that the concept of accountability and, and are people accountable? Do they know what their role is? Do they know to whom they're accountable? You list four enemies of accountability, matrix management structures, joint business heads, too many business lines, indecisive management. You're going to have to read the book if you want to detail on all four, but let's touch I'm on I'm not too sure about the fourth one. Let's touch on a couple quickly. <laughs> that was indecisive management for those who missed the hilarity. Matrix management structures, for those who've been lucky enough not to experience one, because I get the impression you're not a fan, what is a matrix management structure and what's the potential pitfall in terms of accountability, Andrew? Well, I'd be fascinated to hear what Rhonda thinks about this. Because <laughs> you obviously would deal with this with large companies that yeah. you, you advise, and uh, all I can say to you is they don't work. Yeah. And I would drown in agreement. So I think they solve a problem and create a much worse one. You give the example of someone who's the chief operating officer for the Australian banking division of something that's global. So day-to-day -day they work with a local head of investment banking. They also jointly report to that person. 
that person's in an administrative role who reports to the COO of the Australian Investment Bank. That person's role is to manage the entire business, which consists of multiple divisions. So the first CEO also reports to the global banking CEO who's based in New York. Now, I followed you up until- Yeah. Is that the idea of a matrix where you've got multiple sort of intersecting roles and, and report lines? Sometimes it's more straightforward than that. Uh, no, it's, it's always the same. It's where organisations for reasons of politics, uh, revenue silos, all sorts of reasons, sometimes regulatory as well, will have some poor employee reporting to six different people all over the world. Possibly they don't even know any of them. And yet the person who they sit next to is their, is their real boss in, in a functional sense, has no input into their promotions, their pay, their performance reviews. And you get these crazy outcomes where people aren't treated fairly because the people who need to make decisions, important decisions like their, their compensation, actually don't know what they do. Yeah. And likewise, in my view is if you report to somebody, if they can't help you, you shouldn't report to them because it's a waste of time. It's as simple as that. How do you avoid that happening in a large business? Because I, I know my other job is to, to MC events and I'll welcome someone on stage who is the vice chair of blah, blah, blah and global head of boom, boom, boom for a particular – and I'll often joke, you should see her business card. It's massive. But isn't it just the nature as organisations get more complex? Aren't these structures going to – have to emerge? How do you fight it? I don't know. Part of my career was in organisations like 155,000 people and we didn't have a matrix and it worked fine. And so I don't think it's a complexity or a scale thing. I think it's solving the wrong problem. So that example that Andrew just gave saying you're in a silo and you need the silos to sort of talk to each other, we're not collaborating. What we need is a matrix and then people will collaborate. And what you really have is a problem with your relationships or a problem with accountability. And if you solve that, you won't need a matrix structure. Reporting lines won't solve your relationships and reporting lines won't solve accountability. So it's just the wrong solution to the wrong problem. Just a quick stop during today's conversation because I wanted to remind you, if you're enjoying what you're hearing and would like to learn more, you can head over to mafinancial.com slash whatmatters to access your copy of the What Matters eBook, a book that navigates a lifetime of business and investing. That website again, mafinancial.com slash whatmatters. Now... Back to the conversation. You talk about the issue of joint heads. You think preferable not to have them or they only work under certain circumstances? What do you mean? Preferable not to have them, but it's not a black and white rule. And I've, I actually have done a lot of research on this issue. For example, when I stepped down as CEO of Miles Australia at the beginning of 2020, we had to appoint a new CEO. The board had to appoint a new CEO. And it was very clear to me and the board the, the solution was a joint appointment. I was going to raise that under the joint heads yeah, well, part it's, of the it's discussion. Cl- it's clearly, you know, I, I wrote the, the chapter on uh, joint heads with some trepidation, knowing that we just appointed uh, joint heads as head of our business. But Okay, well, let's look at what's the potential problems and why in this situation was it the right way to go? Yeah, well, I think in the majority of circumstances, it's a poor decision and it's a decision that's made, it's one of compromise and that's, that's a generalisation. Now, what the studies have shown, and there's been many that I've actually read, is that there are a number of exceptions to this rule. And the very clear thing is it comes down to chemistry and often history. For example, two founders in a business who started in a garage, they founded the business. There's plenty of examples of this, Google being one, Rhonda. Um, But there's plenty of examples where founders can operate very effectively as joint heads because it's like yin and yang. They know what 
the other's thinking. There's no politics between them. It's embedded in the DNA of the company because it started from them. Yep. It's just, it's like a great marriage where, you know, one's happy to do this and, you know, one might be inside looking after the kids and the other one's out mowing the lawns or whatever. And it just works. So that's an important dynamic. And if, but if you don't have that and you just try and throw two people together who don't know each other and say, guess what? You're joint heads. Uh, it leads to, I think, ultimately, a lot of indecision, a lot of confusion with staff because the accountability issues are there. People will start playing one off against the other. I'll go and ask Rhonda because she always says yes. I won't ask Adam because he always says no. Mm-hmm. Uh, that type of thing. And that's not healthy. You study people and, and, and people as businesses are just collections of people. And what is it about the way people work that works for or against the concept of joint heads? Joint head can work really, really well. And I've seen them work in a, in a large company with country head, that two people together. But it was when their skills were really complementary. So one had a strong marketing background, one had a strong accounting background. That's a perfect CEO. Yep. And what they did when they came together is they fully trusted each other for their half of the job, if you like. And so that was sort of how they saw it. They were able to do five days a week next to each other. It wasn't part-time or anything. But how they complemented each other was based on the history that they had, as Andrew just said. I think that's really important, that there's trust and an expectation the other person's going to make great decisions and you're going to back them. I think when you get into a position where you're sort of like, I wish I'd been there because I would have done something and, differently, and, and you've got a problem. that's critical that when a decision's made by one, yep. the other one had to support it without question. Yep. Because as soon as you start, and I've experienced this when I've reported to joint heads in my career, where one will make a decision, which is a terrible decision, and the other one will, will say to you, well, don't tell anyone, but I think it was a terrible decision as well. And that's a slippery slope. Yep. Just quickly, is there anything you'd add to the four? We had the four of matrix management, joint business heads, too many business lines, indecisive management. We've touched on that tangentially. Anything you'd add to that list of enemies of accountability? I would say inclusion. And I know that sounds like a really funny word to add into that equation. But what do you mean by inclusion? When you feel like you're accountable and expected to turn up and do your part of it, you turn up accountably and you absolutely play that role. When you don't feel like you're included or you step back from it a bit or you're just helping someone else, like if you're the understudy to the joint head, for example, then you'll defer. And anything you defer is not accountable. That's just, I'll explain my opinion, but I don't really have to but back it. there's a senior, yes. senior joint head and a junior joint head. Yeah, that's so you're not really joint heads. Yeah, that's yeah. right. One point you make in the book that I quite like, Andrew, is the, the need to avoid complexity. You say that Across the journey, most experienced leaders you've seen actually speak with simplicity, with avoiding complexity. Uh, there was a great quote, Kim Beasley once, the Labor Party leader, was accused by someone of saying, look, Kim, you're fantastic. You've clearly got a great mind. Do you sometimes, you know, do, you, do you have trouble getting the, across in words that regular people can understand? And Kim Beasley's response was along the lines of, I'll admit, I, I, am, I am sometimes, you know, I tend to prolix. <laughs> Dude, if you're using the word prolix as a confession that you sometimes use words that people don't understand, I think we found a problem. Why is it so important? Well, I think it's something that typically comes with experience because when people are inexperienced, I think they equate complexity often to intelligence or knowledge. They feel, I've got this knowledge and I'm going to show you, I'm going to prove to you, Adam, that I'm really smart, SMRT, and I'm going to you know, bamboozle you with complex words, with acronyms, with I'm going to, you know, have all these things and studies and all this, where in reality, most people, when you're dealing with them, just want you to be straightforward. They want simplicity. If you want to get a message across to them, they just want you to give them the message. 
They don't want all the baggage around it and all of the, they're not interested. And it's actually not very helpful. So when I talk about avoiding complexity and how you present it, whether it's verbally or in a report, it's probably one of the most important lessons I think I can give to the staff at Molas Australia because too many people, when they're writing a report or give a presentation, they'll throw all sorts of facts in there and detail. And I'll give you an example of one of my pet hates is when someone gives a presentation and it's in a written form of book, which is what we call in banking a book, and and you'll go with them around as they present to different people. And the first thing they'll do is say, let's start on page 32. And you'll, everyone goes to page 32. <laughs> and, and, and I walk out and I, after a bit of experience, I say, can you just make page 32 page one? <laughs> what, if that's the most important page. Let's start there. Let's start there. Make it simple. Tell them what you want to tell them and get rid of just, we can tear up all the other stuff and we can talk about footy or something with them. Why is it so important when trying to convey a message to have a, a simplicity to what you say? There's a, a really beautiful word, and it's only in the Urban Dictionary at the moment, but it'll make it across to the real one. I'm oh, sure. really? A word from the I'm Urban? Sure. Are you across the Urban Dictionary, Andrew? <laughs> this is sounding complex. <laughs> <laughs> it's called sonder. And sonder. It, yeah, and it means that every Rhonda, per- tell us about sonder. <laughs> it means that every person is living a life as complicated and complex as yours. And I think that's why simplicity gets such great cut through because we've all got a lot going on. We've all got lots in our head. The person who can bring clarity to the conversation, who can cut through things, we hear. We hear exactly what they're trying to do and we are, we're trusting them. We're saying, good, that's what I wanted to know about. Now I'm listening. And I think that's where simplicity gets such enormous cut through and it's so important. And I've heard it said, especially if you're, if you're trying to explain something to someone, at least if you start with a really simple statement of where this conversation is going to go, the point I want to make, if in the conversation the other person then loses their way, they'd have at least got that mooring point of where what you were meant to be trying to explain to them or where you said you were going and they can think, well, actually now with what you're saying to me now, I've, I have lost track of that starting point. Can we, can we just go back there? You say, Andrew, that sometimes if you have no clue what someone's talking about, there's a pretty good chance they don't either. Correlation, 100. I think if you're listening to somebody try and explain something to you and you don't understand what they're talking about, then there's a very, very high chance that they don't either. And <laughs> I used to think, I mean, many years ago, I used to th- when people would bamboozle me and they'd talk in riddles, I'd think, my God, how smart's this person? Like, mm. I can't understand what they're talking about. And after a while, you realise they're actually an idiot. <laughs> they don't know what they're talking about, so they can't explain it. It's a critical skill, I believe, to, to understand your audience, to know who you're talking to, and then to be able to speak to them at a level and in a way that they'll be able to comprehend what you're saying. You talk about this in terms of preparing reports, in terms of pitching to clients, et cetera. There's a great case study of a gentleman called John Smith. Can you tell us John Smith from North Sydney's story? Yes, this is this is night radio. In fact, my wife, who just proofread uh, the book, she said to me, is that a true story? And I said, that one is. Some of them aren't, by the way. <laughs> um, but it was something that... Um, typifies what I'm talking about, that a colleague of mine who is incredibly intelligent, very senior person in the Australian business community, this was many years ago, back in the late 90s, and he was on night radio, and it was one of those call-in programs where they talk back radio with a money expert at 8 o'clock at night or something on a Wednesday night, and you could imagine people sitting in their house in Linfield, you know, in their 80s listening to their wireless, and, and John Smith, we'll call him, was on and he was talking about real estate and no matter how simple the host 
tried to steer the conversation to simplicity about, is it good to buy a house? John Smith would go into great complexity about, you know, dynamic, you know, demand supply, you know, continuums and da 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 and, you know, gross lettable areas and net rents and government policy, fiscal. And uh, you could just hear the, the, the um, frustration on the, on the host, the interviewer, trying to bring it back. So eventually I, I couldn't take any more. They opened the lines and I called in. This is a colleague of mine, of course. And I asked him, at the time we were IPOing a, an office REIT. So I thought it'd be good if everyone listening would want to buy office REITs. So I just said, I've been looking at commercial real estate, John Smith. And uh, was I John Smith? I can't remember. Um, <laughs> in the story, you rang in under the fake <laughs> name. I was John Smith. John Smith. That's right. It was someone else. We'll protect his identity. By calling him and, John Smith. And I said, uh, what would you think about investing in commercial office property? Thinking it was a fairly you know, easy layup for somebody who's about to do an IPO of commercial property, right? And he went through this very, very complex. <laughs> and in the end, I said, and the host said, uh, John, do you understand what he just said? And I said, yeah, I reckon he said, they're going up, so buy. And he goes, John Smith gets it. <laughs> and that's what I mean by completely missing the audience because the audience was sitting there not knowing what he was talking about. Hmm. He was really smart, but he was, but he couldn't bring it back to really simple things. One of the most important you know, people in this that you will have a relationship with, that you have to communicate with, of course, is the client. And you make a really important point here in the book that when you come on as a as an advisor to a client, chances are they know their business much better than you do and can ever hope to. You use the lovely phrase, no client wants to be told how to suck eggs by a lacto-ovo-vegetarian. Um, trust becomes the crucial issue. Now, you're big on this, Rhonda, and it's, it's almost cliche that, of course, trust is important. What do we mean by trust? And let's drill down into the, the human mechanics of establishing and maintaining that all-important business yeah. quality of trust. So I think trust is important in all parts of life and we just have to keep bringing it into business and sometimes people forget that. But I think it's just believing the person. You believe that they've got your best interest at their heart, that you're on the same page, that you're going to that same goal, this is what you're trying to do. And it's really hard to build and people ask me all the time, how do you build trust? Mm. And the answer is be trustworthy just over and over and over. And that builds a really great relationship and it stays the course of time. But you can break it the day that you're not trustworthy because they'll think, oh, remember that time that you didn't do the right thing by me and I won't forget it. To develop trust, be trustworthy. What do you mean? There's some simple things you can do and it goes back to Andrew's conversation about trying to be too smart. So when you're talking to a client, I love this chapter when I read it, but it is this conversation when a person says to you, I want to tell you what my problem is. I want to tell you the challenge I've got. And you see a person who's not particularly confident or not sure of their own space what they'll do is they rephrase it to their own language. they say, ah, I see what you're saying, but I would say this, and I'll say it again. The person thinks, no, that's not what I said. I said something different. Now the person either feels stupid, like they can't describe their own problem, or they feel like you don't understand it. You're actually better saying, I hear exactly what you're saying, using their words to restate it so they've heard them, and then responding to their challenge or their question. And that's the beginning of trust because you're sort of going, I care about what you've got the problem with and I want to do something about it, or I care about that challenge, I'm going to help you. And that's sort of what people want to hear. How do you get from that level of connection, bond with someone? You know, you, you get on well and they think, this guy clearly knows what he's talking about as a business. How does trust grow out of that? I think the first thing is whenever you're dealing with a client is that you're authentic. I think if, if you can portray 
that you are authentic, that brings a lot of trust because first up, you're not putting up some sort of a facade. You are who you are and I think people, most people can see that. Spidey sense. Some can't, <laughs> but most people can see it. Being authentic, I would think, is critically important. And then it's really building a connection. And the first thing is building a relationship with a client is not all just about business and it's not all just about the, the, the problem of the day. It's about building a, a long-term relationship. And you can only build a long-term relationship over the long term. <laughs> um, but some people are better at, at starting them a bit quicker. Some people take a long time. Some people ne never get there. But if, I think if you're authentic, you listen to people, you can find connections, which and the connections might be interest in sport, kids, it could be whatever, interest in art, but finding a connection, being authentic, listening to them, and then not telling them, even if you think, well, they're just wrong, that's just what they want to do is just ridiculous. It's the manner in which you can take people on a journey to say, okay, well, I understand that's what you think you want to do, you want to do. Have you thought of it this way? Because this is another way of looking at it and potentially we could achieve that doing it in a different way. And you can take people on the journey. And, you know, and that, that takes time to learn how to do that. I presented an award once to uh, someone in the, in the financial advice sector, and this kid was a young, up-and-coming, a young Turk of the industry. And I interviewed him quickly on stage in front of everyone and said, you know, he talked about his business practices. And, and he said one of his secrets was when he's meeting a client and they're chatting and they've got a 30-minute meeting with them about finances and all that, inevitably there's going to be a bit of personal stuff comes up. And this guy would always grab his pen and, just quickly jot down a couple of personal anecdotes or observations or moments from the client. And then before he next met that person, he'd go back through his notes and quickly look down and, and you know, if, if the previous time the guy had said, oh, yeah, my wife's bought a piano, she's going to take piano lessons, or my son's trialling for the rep footy team, anything, six months later, hey, by the way, how's your, how's your wife's piano playing going? Is that coming on? Did your kid make the footy team? Dot, dot, dot. Is that really beautiful human interaction and understanding or is that yeah. grossly <laughs> manipulative neuro-linguistic programming type <laughs> behaviour? I think there's a balance in there, isn't there? Because I, I worked with a CEO who was absolutely fantastic, one of the best I've ever worked with, and he walked into a branch and the first thing he did was walked up to a, a concierge in this branch that he was, he was leading and hadn't seen this guy for three years. And his opening question was, oh, great to run into you. Did your son make that team? Now, he had remembered three years ago that his son was a protege soccer player and was on his way. Now, that was really important. And I said to the guy later, how did you remember that? Like three years, you meet thousands of people. How does that work? And he said, because that was super important to them. And I really thought it was a great story. He was so proud. So he was more responding to the fact that this dad was so excited and proud of his kid and it mattered to him because he's also a dad and he gets that. So when you've got an authentic understanding, you believe, you remember something about the person that actually matters to them, not the list of I looked at your LinkedIn profile and I know that you worked in dun, 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 dun. That's, that's not authentic. That's just yeah. you looked at the LinkedIn profile. And people have got a spidey sense for that. They know whether you're genuinely wrapped up in their story and caring about it and remembering it or whether you just did your homework and kept the list. I hope you're enjoying the What Matters podcast as much as we're enjoying bringing it to you. If you've listened across the series, you've picked up many great tips on how to be successful as a leader, as a business mind, and as a person. One of the highlights of the series was in episode five, our 101 of starting and building a successful business. Andrew shared with us a few tips, one being thinking long-term, not short-term. I've always liked the concept of the marshmallow test because I think it's a very true indicator of human behavior in that you know, clearly the kids in, in the test, they can have one marshmallow. If they don't eat it, they get another one. So 
it's a test of self-control and it's also a test of being able to focus on the longer term outcome. So in the short term, you know, they can eat it and they don't get the second Little sugar one. hit. But the kids that could, could sit down and do this and they, you know, <laughs> where's that marshmallow? And they look at it and they might even lick it and they wouldn't eat it. What the study found is it's both self-control and it's also being able to, to balance the long-term benefits of self-control. And what they found in that test, incidentally, was that the kids they reviewed later in life and those that actually waited to get the second marshmallow had better outcomes later in life. That's episode five of What Matters, the 101 of starting and building a successful business. Make sure you check it out. Now, back to our conversation. During lockdown, there would have been a period of time where you would have spent a lot less time face-to-face with clients, or you would have brought in new clients, some of whom you might not have met, might still might not have actually met face-to-face. Has that affected the way you interact as people? Have you learned anything from that experience? I think, firstly, during COVID-19, one of the things that teaches you is how people react under pressure, because often, particularly early in the crisis, it was a crisis, so people are under pressure. Hmm. So people behave differently. So I think it just that's just a reminder that people do um, react differently to adversity. But I think that what I would say is it's just reaffirm my view that there's nothing can replace face to face sitting in a room with somebody and actually interacting. Um, if I never went on another Zoom call in my life, I'd be <laughs> delighted. Um, I think that it just shows how important seeing body language and, and just the, the, the clues you get from people when you're actually sitting talking to them, yeah. just how critically important it is. And the other thing I'd say, it's not so much about a client, but one of the reasons I'm a big believer that people will come back to offices and not be sitting around in their, mm. in their apartment on the central coast Zooming people all day long is you can't, you can't develop, you can't build, you can't maintain culture. I don't believe on the internet. And I don't believe that you can train people effectively. And that's one of the things I really did observe is, is that um, particularly our junior people, when they were preparing reports for clients, for example, and, and there was no interaction where you could explain to them what you wanted, it would get emailed to you, you'd open it up and you'd just go, oh, this is, I'm going oh, I'm I'm to have to redo this because they've, complete, they've completely missed what I wanted. And it's just very, and then you, you, know, you, you, you telephone them to say, can we talk it through? And you can't get them because they're probably at Woolworths, by the way, buying their groceries or something. So it just doesn't work as well. You're in this space. You're, this is real meat for you. This is yeah. people, work, the nature of work. And you know, people have said it, it used to be, I think, about 5% of all work was done from home effectively. And yeah. during the pandemic, it jumped to 2025. Some people will say it'll stay there. It's going to grow to 40. Others go chill out. It's going to go back to about 7 in terms of human interaction and getting the best out of people and what people want to do, the sort of things Andrew has spoken about, what are your thoughts on that? It's such a massive topic, but there's some really good fundamentals that you need to be, all be close to. And I think the conversation's getting to that now. So if you go back in February before the lockdown, we were working with clients and what lockdown would do and what you'd have to do to get through it the best you could and what you would need when you got out of it. Because it's really clear. If you look at big tech companies where so many of their staff work remotely and they're very proud of it. And when we first went into lockdown, you saw them all race around globally to say, we're never bringing them back. We're never going to have an office. We're the Agile best no office. Been, yeah. They were talking their own books, <laughs> yeah, yeah. slightly. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what they were doing. And, and what you knew is that those companies were already dealing with 
what is well-being issues. I mean, this is a mental health issue to be alone, isolated. Not everybody lives with people that they love with a crashing wave in front of them in a beautiful home. Mm. We live in all sorts of places and and living in a share house, living with people that aren't close to you, um, living by yourself. There's a whole bunch of things that can go wrong in space, trying to look after a special needs child, trying to teach a child who's five and can't yet read so they can't do their home learning. And there's so many things that don't work with us being isolated. We are naturally tribal. We're naturally community-based. We like being around each other. If you look at the problems in old folks' homes, they call it skin hunger, that inability to be touched by someone else. It's like an electric shock when someone finally touches you. We like people around us. It's a super important part of being a human being. I've got friends who would disagree with that. <laughs> so maybe the rest yeah. of us can come back. Yeah. <laughs> you're saying your friends don't suffer. I do have friends who hate people. Hunger when you're sure, you're <laughs> um, so one, one thing you focus on here is within business, when you are having those, those meetings and those relationships around a, a big deal, moving towards a major interaction between people who might be coming at it from quite completely different sides, you, you put some really interesting sort of guidelines down here. The most important thing, be focused on the most important thing. What do you mean? I'm a big believer in the most important thing, and that is that in anything you do in life, it doesn't matter if it's, whether it's a big deal or things you're doing in your family life, that the most important thing is what you should focus on because if you get that right, the details tend to work out. And if you get it wrong, it doesn't matter if you work out the details because it's not going to work out. So... Uh, example, I, if, if I go to a, a meeting on a transaction, for example, um, typically I'm with others within my organisation, maybe more, more junior people who'll be you know, scribing notes and getting focusing on the detail. And that's important because someone's got to follow up and make sure those things happen. But my focus will, will typically be what needs to happen for this transaction to be successful and to actually occur. And I'll be focusing. There might only be two or three things. Might be, might be one thing. And there's no point doing a huge amount of work and having everyone do lots of analysis and write lots of reports if you've missed the obvious right up front. And it's amazing how often people, for whatever reason, they psychologically avoid the most important things because they don't want to confront them because sometimes they're the hard things. Is there an assumption that if we if we put all these little jigsaw pieces in place, then we'll be able to move the big boulder over? And once we've established a bit of trust and a bit of rapport dealing with the minutiae, then we can tackle the big yeah, thing. In, the, in, some, in some ways, that makes a logical it's, sense. It's the momentum of what you're trying to achieve. And a lot of people, I think, feel if you're busy and doing stuff and analysing stuff and doing lots of stuff, 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 then the momentum will take you to the finish line, the promised land will be there and all will be revealed at the end. Well, it's amazing how often you get to the altar if you haven't focused on the most important thing and you get there. And then the most important thing will ultimately be standing at the altar waiting for you. <laughs> and then you have to deal with it. And if if you haven't thought it through and you can't deal with it, then all that work was wasted. Is there something in the human condition that likes putting off those the big ugly elephant? You know it's eventually going to come trampling into the room. Yeah, I think I think um I love the idea of putting the big thing up front and saying that's where we're all headed. Because then when it does get really hard, because every race, bridge, whatever you want to call the the metaphor the last meter, the last two meters that's really hard. And if you know why you're going there and what you're trying to do together, you'll work really hard for it. So like the advice we always give people if they're trying to connect with people, they're trying to build a, an arrangement or a deal or contract, whatever it is, is if you're building a bridge to someone, build 60%. 
because that generosity of the extra 10, even if they're having a tired day or they haven't quite got the energy, you'll meet them at their 40. If they build 60, you've got the strongest bridge in the world. So it's but like super important. you go in thinking, important. I'll build 40, hopefully they'll build 60. I'll build 48 and good luck. You're you going to end me. up short. Yeah, that last two metres will be where you fall apart. In fact, you actually say write the press release that you plan to put out there at the beginning yeah. of the negotiation. What is that? Your sort of guiding star. This is my uh, number one gold-plated trick, if you Here like, trick, trick of the trade. <laughs> uh, you can actually, you'll never, no one will ever have to pay me a fee again to advise them because okay. I will tell them the this. The effect. It is, it is. It's unbelievable, the, the magic of this trick. No, but it is, if you are looking at a situation, an opportunity or whatever it is you want to do, I'll always say, write the press release. And, it, and people look at you and they'll, and they'll look at you very quizzically saying, well, they're not saying it because they're not sure where you're coming from, but they'll be thinking, this is going to take months, this deal. Well, you, th you think we could do it today, do you? <laughs> no, that's going to take months. Write the press release. And if you write the press release, what it forces you to do, and yes, you have to write it. You can't just think about it. You mm -hmm. can't, you know, jot a couple of points. You have to write it as if you're going to release it to the world. And what it forces you to do is really confront the most important thing and to confront the issues of, does this thing we're going to do make sense? Does it, is it something people are going to think is really good or are they going to think this is really stupid? And it becomes, in most instances, by doing that, you can work out in half an hour whether you should be pursuing this. It'll tell you. Because if it's hard to write, there's a fair chance it's not a great idea. If, it's, if it just flows off the bat and you can just write it really easily and you think, wow, I feel really good about that, good chance it's a great thing It's going to happen. The Prudhomme effect. What do you think, Rhonda? I love the idea of it. I thought it was really, really good. And actually when I read it, I thought, oh, I don't do that. I should do that. Because it is. It gives you that North Star. That's what we're headed for. And if it's great, we'll all work hard for it. And when we get lethargic or exhausted or it takes a long time, you'll put in the extra energy and make it if you know exactly where we're going. When it comes to big deals, in particular M&A, merger and acquisition, you point to a single thing you've seen that most often trips up either at the outset or at the altar. Big deals. The social issues. What do you mean? The social issues. The social issues is an investment banking term for arguments over who's going to be in charge. Uh -huh. That's the social issues. It's who's got a job at the end of the, the merger or acquisition. And you know, typically in a, any, any merger or acquisition, I, I've never quite known what the difference is. They're the same. Basically, <laughs> it could be called M&M <laughs> um, or A&A. If you've got two boards, two CEOs, two CFOs, two heads of human resources, two chief operating officers, people are going to lose their job. And the people who make decisions on mergers and acquisitions are usually the chairman, chairperson, chairwoman, the CEO, maybe the CFO, maybe the board of directors. They will make the decision. And the number of times I've been involved in transactions where the deal makes complete sense. It's great for shareholders. Everybody says all the way through the transaction, we're all going to do what's best for shareholders. That's what we're here for. It's all about You've shareholders. You've got the perfect press release ready to press go. Press release ready to go. We love, you know, it's all about shareholder value and you'll get right to the end and it, you sit in a room and you stare each other in the eyes and you go, right, who's going to be the chief executive? And they can't agree. And suddenly, shareholders are forgotten. It's, we're not doing this deal if I can't be the CEO. Full stop. The social issues kills another deal. Yeah. It happens all the time. Yeah. We, we call it ego, 
but it's actually a lack of. And when people need a bigger title or a bigger thing to be call themselves, and that's when they get really fragile about anything, despite how good it can be for everybody. So I think else. one of the, the, the social issue. I think it's actually more than ego because in business it's also money. Yeah. And and often it's someone goes from you know you might be a, a non-executive director earning two hundred thousand dollars a year to, to turn up to twelve meetings a year, and you think that this is a great gig. I like this. And then you get told, well, if we merge, you're not going to you're not going to have that you. anymore. And you know, a lot of people would think, well, I need that two hundred thousand dollars. I don't think this deal looks very good anymore. And so you you need to understand that upfront. Is that going to be a problem? And then you have to deal with it. And it's you know, it's not easy to deal with it. But sometimes money can fix it, but sometimes it can't. And that's when ego really does come into it. When it's there's no amount of money that can fix it. It's just I want to be the boss. Yeah. And make sure that the people you've got in charge of your company or business are the sort of people who are confident regardless because if they're fragile to the point that every little tiny thing matters to their ego, then yeah. they if, will if be de- very difficult. Correct. If decisions are made, economic, financial decisions are made through the lens of what does it mean for me, you haven't got a great leader. So in your experience, have you seen people who when that deal comes and when the moment comes or in advance would say, I think, I think she'd be better in the job than me? I will expect to be phased out by this. Is that a common thing to see? I don't know if it's common, but you do see it. And and typically, if it's going to be that easy, it'll be said very early in the in the journey. It'll be, look, you know, I think clearly they're the better person to lead the business going forward. It'll, it'll happen quite early. Sure. And this is where the press release does come into it, because one of the things you've got to put in a press release, if it's unless it's a terrible press release, is the new CEO. Is the new CEO is going to be X, and the new chairperson is going to be Y. And it's amazing how often I've written the press release and shown it to both sides and it's square bracket. And you go, okay, now just can you write in who's going to be in those seats? And you can just see straight away this is never going to happen. It's like tribal council and survivor. Not happening. Not happening. It also comes back to a really fundamentally understanding of what a leader does. And so if a leader's job is looking after themselves versus creating a great organisation, creating great space for other people, impacting other people, do great work, whatever it happens to be, then they, if they can create a great merger, for example, and step back because the other person's better to run it, they'll go and do something else great. They don't need to, I'm going to fight to the death for the one job. The other problem I'd say is that often it's the person in the leadership position who says, I will do the best thing by the company and by the shareholders. I'm happy to step down. They're usually the person you don't want to step down And the one that says, under no circumstances am I going, they're terrible and you want them to step down. That's the old King Solomon. It, it's, <laughs> okay. Go figure it. We, we've covered a, a wide range of There's much more in the book for people to deep dive into. But in, in wrapping, let me ask this. With the years of experience you've got under your belt, Andrew, what is it about the way people operate and the drivers of people and dealing with people that you know now that you've, you've learned that's the most important piece you've learned across the journey that you might not have had 20, 30 years ago, and then I'll ask your takeaway from the people discussion here. Rhonda, what, what, do, what do you know now that, that you've only learnt over time that you really want to impress on people? I think that the key things are humility and authenticity. If people have those characteristics, they're typically good people, just good people, simple as that. And uh, I, say, I often say you can't, do, you can't do good business with a bad person. So I think if, if people have the, just the basic human characteristics that they're good people, Everything tends to work out. Rhonda Brightonhall, CEO of Moi, host of the Article 23 podcast. What's what's your key takeaway about the people here? I think of the, all the things we've discussed, but I would say 
two really important points. One is when you walk into the room, everyone's as important as you. So when you walk in and think you're smarter or better or more important, you've got a problem. So you want everyone in your organization to come in knowing that they could learn from each other, they're open to each other. I think that's super important. And so that attitude that everyone's important, I'm going to give them space to do their great work and contribute makes a great organization. And I think a lot of what we've talked about today has gone to that. Rhonda, thank you so much for joining us on the What Matters podcast. You're welcome. It was lovely to be here. Thank you. Thank you for joining today's episode of What Matters. And don't forget, head over to mafinancial.com slash whatmatters to download your copy of the ebook. Be sure to subscribe to What Matters. And we'll see you next time to hear from a man who's done it all on and off the field. Two-time AFL Premiership captain and now CEO of the Sydney Swans, Tom Harley, will discuss a lifetime of lessons learnt from sport. That's next on What Matters. What Matters.